we do long to live out the, the truths of the words that we've sung. Our Father, we do thank you that you have, by your eternal purpose and grace, called us to faith in your dear and beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that purpose does not terminate in our coming to Christ, but our being conformed completely to the image of Christ. And that will happen on that glorious day that we are resurrected in bodies that are spiritual and bodies that are imperishable, bodies that are made new, bodies that are fit to live on a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells, where the sun is done away because your glory will fill it for eternity with the brightness, with its brightness it will illumine our way. We will live forever in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We will forever demonstrate the life of Christ in us in perfect love and holiness and sin will never be a thought or a threat to us at all. We can barely conceive of these realities though they are true. But help us to think of them often and press on toward them. As Paul said, he presses on toward the goal for the prize for which he had been saved, for which he had been called, and that is that resurrection glory. And so help us to live consistent with it. And this morning, use your word as a, a part of your plan as we gather together to sing and to pray and to read and to preach and to do the, all of those things that are meant to strengthen our hearts in grace and to equip us to live as saints in this world. And so to that end, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, take this word, be our teacher, our encourager, our comforter, our helper, our guide, and the one who makes all of those things possible in the lives of the children of God. And it is in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Uh, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we find ourselves there again. I remember hearing as a, in a sermon a long time ago uh, this, this statement, like, what if the whole world for one day, just one day, we could say for one hour, we could say for one minute, but for one day had to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? What if every politician... Every husband and wife, every employer and employee had to, for one whole day, they could only speak what was absolutely the truth. What do you think would happen? The world would crumble, and that was the illustration. The world would crumble. And just by thinking of it in simple terms like that, we can be uh, confronted with or made clearer to us how much the world is really built on lies and deception. How much of our very systems of government and relationships are built on untruths, things that are not true. We have a tendency, because of the fall and our inherent sin, to speak in ways that are not in conformity with the, what really is, and what is really is in terms of the intention of our heart. And that, in part, is what Solomon is going to make us confront, or confront us with this morning, as we'll finish up this section and look at verses 4 to 7. We are, of course, here encountering again the large theme of the fear of God that brings meaning and purpose, or that brings meaning and purpose to our life. It is to live in the fear of God, which is to live in the knowledge of God, and to live by faith in God and His purposes, and ultimately, as those purposes are revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, and I'll read down to verse 7. Hopefully we'll get to verses 8 and 9, but um, if not, we'll get there next week. But beginning in verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear 
God. This is again addressing the life and the individual who fears God and therefore lives with meaning and with purpose in their life. And the demonstrations here that he's giving these illustrations are what that looks like to live in the fear of God. We live with a sense of reverence to him. We live in a spirit of prayer, but a spirit of prayer that recognizes the infinite gaps that exist by nature between God and ourselves, but yet a gap that has been closed by redemption. And so we come with that sense of humility, that sense of reverence, that sense of God's majesty, that sense, as we used the big $3 terms last week, of eminence and, or transcendence and eminence, his greatness and yet his nearness to those who come to him, as we read in Isaiah 66, or Noel did with a broken and a contrite heart, one who trembles at his word, who realizes in the written word of God, God himself speaks to us. And now in this next section in verses 4 through 7, he addresses the fear of God in terms of our speech in the context of vows. But really it's about our speech being honest and with integrity before the Lord. He begins in chapter verse 4 with do not or when you make a vow to God, when you make a vow to God. And so he's addressing a positive thought here, as he does uh, throughout uh, Ecclesiastes, very often first through a negative example, in this case, actually, a warning. And here it is that we are to be a people in the fear of God that reflect our commitment to promises. We're to be people of integrity, people of truth. The warning here is coming before God and living before others in insincerity. And that is shown by the failure to follow through with our word. So again, he says in verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay your vow. Simply put, when you make a commitment to the Lord, follow through with it. That's the simple point. God is not pleased or impressed with making the commitment, but he is pleased with the sincerity of the follow through of that commitment and of the promise that was made in his presence. In fact, he says again, strikingly here in verse 4, that to make a commitment and then to fail to follow through with it because of a shallowness of heart, because of something lacking in terms of root and commitment within the individual, they are, before the eyes of God, a spiritual fool. Foolishness in, in wisdom literature has as its foundation one who does not fear God, who does not live in what Solomon is here commending, namely a life that fears him. He says again in verse 4, For he takes no delight in fools. God sees that as a foolish life who would make these commitments but lack the kind of true worship that follows through. This is the spiritually foolish who rush forward thoughtlessly, carelessly, driven by a subtle sense of self-will, self-confidence that is not governed and sourced in the fear of God. Now, in order to understand this, let me make a few general points and spend some time talking about a vow. What is a vow? What is, what is a vow in terms of how Solomon is uh, in the Old Testament understood a vow, and how does that relate essentially to us? Do we still have vows, and should we make them, and so forth? What, first of all, what is a vow? What is a vow? What does he mean here when you make a vow to God? The assumption is in the language that a vow would be made to God, that would be a part of the life, the religious life of the nation of Israel, an Old Testament saint. So here he says, when you make a vow. And so what is a vow? A vow is essentially a commitment made to the Lord, an expression of faith. It is a, it is a promise in this particular context to do something. It's a promise to do something that was made in the presence of God and therefore in the presence of others. This is the idea of being in the temple. That's the context here. Guard your steps as you go up to the house of God. That in the temple and in the context of temple worship, that there is some kind of commitment, verbal commitment, made to do something as an expression of faith in God. Now, some connect the idea here, vow, to that of oath. And that is a right connection. But I'm going to narrow it here and not bring in the larger discussion of oaths, but specifically to this act of a promise. This act of a promise or this situation of a promise, a commitment to the Lord to do something. So that is a vow. It is a, a vow then was a normal part of the religious life of a Jew. Of, and of course it was in 
other religions as well. But here in the context of the Jewish nation, a vow was a way that one expressed essentially faith, uh, love for the Lord, a desire to please him, a desire in some way to honor him that was over and above what the law required. And so that would be a second thing to note about a vow, is that a vow was voluntary. It was not something that was required by the Mosaic law. There was no prescription or commandment to make a vow. And they notes that in verse 5, he says, It is better that you should not vow than to make a vow and to not pay or to fail and to follow through. So again, a person was under no obligation uh, to make a vow. Uh, let me just give you one text here in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Verse 21 through 22, he says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, reflecting Solomon's words, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, verse 22, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. So in other words, the only compulsion that somebody would have had to make this kind of vow, this sort of public expression of faith, is that which would have arisen within them supposedly as a means of faith, as a means of a desire to glorify God in a unique way above and beyond what the law required. Although it was not required, however, once an vow was made, the individual was under obligation to fulfill it. Now, what kind of vows would have been made? What kind of vows would have been made then, and what kind of vows do we make? Let me give you a few. Sometimes one, someone could come, and in their bringing their offering to the temple, they would have made a vow of some kind of material gift. Now, there would have been a variety of material gifts. It could have been money. It could have been something from the flock. It could have been some other kind of thing that was a part of the normal worship of an Israelite, but this, again, was something over and above. Leviticus, Leviticus 22, 21, for example, there's many passages we could go to. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, that is a free will offering of the herd of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. Uh, there shall be no defect in it. In other words, it was a free will offering. It was something that they did on their own volition and it was something, in this case, material. It was an extra offering from his flock, from the animals that he possessed. Sometimes a vow was merely a commitment, or not merely, but it was a commitment to be faithful, a vow to be faithful to God. Now, this is before the Mosaic Law, but we do see an example of this in Genesis chapter 28. Verse 20, in Jacob, he said, you'll remember this as he was fleeing from his brother. He was fleeing to his relative's house. On the journey there, God had appeared to him in a dream. That's Jacob's ladder. And he says this after he experienced this dream. He says in verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And as a sign of that vow, he set up a stone in verse 22. He says, The stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. It was a commitment to faithfulness. It was a commitment to live before God as his servant. And it was a commitment here also of a material. I will give a tenth to you of whatever way that God prospered him. Sometimes a vow was a commitment to a kind of service. And we'll turn there, but number six, number six, it speaks of the Nazarite vow. And it was a Nazarite vow was a commitment to particular service to God for a period of time. It involved certain signs such as shaving the head and other things, but it was a righteous vow uh, before God. Sometimes a vow was to do some kind of work for the Lord, to do some kind of activity for him. So in Numbers chapter 21, verse 2, let me read that, Numbers 21.2 says this. Again, you don't have to flip around all of these. He says, So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. In other words, a vow before God was, If you give me deliverance in battle, then I will execute battle and, your, and your, I will wage a war for you uh, for your honor and for your glory. Sometimes a vow was dedication of a gift. 
dedication of a gift to make some kind of sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this one you're going to be more familiar with. And this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And this is with Hannah. If you'll remember Hannah, Hannah was one of two wives of an Israelite, Elkna. And as the wife of one of the wives of Elkna, Hannah was the one who was barren. Her rival, as it were, was able to have children. And this grieved Hannah very much. And Elkna loved Hannah. And he said, why are you so grieved? Why are you so sad? Aren't I better to you uh, than I were to attend sons? And he said, she said, no, it is the reason that she weeps is because the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had kept from her bearing children, which particularly in that society was, was a shame, was a sense of God's withholding of blessing, or maybe even in some case a curse. And that, that grieved her. She wanted children. And so Hannah goes, if you remember, she goes to the temple. And Eli was priest at that time. And as while she's in the temple, she is praying to the Lord. And verse 10 says this, that she was greatly distressed and she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And in the grief of her soul and in the sadness that her conscience felt and in the heaviness of her heart, she made a vow to the Lord. She made a vow in verse 11 and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Eli, of course, was watching from the distance, seeing her pray before the Lord, not knowing what she was doing, but he was seeing her mouth move. To him, maybe she was just mumbling something, and he thought she was drunk. But in fact, she was merely pouring out her heart to the Lord. And so Eli says to her in verse 14, Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And so Hannah made a vow and said, Lord, if you will see my affliction, if you will take pity on me and show me your compassion, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate that son to your service. If you're familiar with the story, God answered that prayer. And she went home. I just, there's a little footnote here. She left with joy because she knew the matter was in the Lord's hand at that point. She left. She went back up with Elkanah and his other wife, and she had relations, and she conceived a child. She nursed that child, and when the child was weaned, she took him to the temple, and she gave him to Eli and dedicated this child in fulfillment of her vow and service to the temple. And if you remember, who was that child? Does anyone remember? Samuel, right. That was Samuel. And Samuel was a great prophet in the line of prophets in the Old Testament. But she made a vow. It was a commitment of service. She made a promise. She made a promise to the Lord. And in her case, it was one that was fulfilled. And this isn't even only in the Old Testament. Uh, vows were taken and still around, even by the Apostle Paul. And he was in the, in the book of Acts, you'll remember, in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, it says, Paul, having remained many days longer, uh, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria... And with him were Priscilla and Aquila and Centuria, and he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. He was keeping a vow that he had made. And there's other places too. So a vow was, before the Lord, a righteous expression of faith. It was a part of the law, not as a command, but as something regulated and something commended before God. It is, was an expression of faith, in the Lord, and it was a commitment to do something for him. Let me give you one other passage here. It's Psalm 66 again. Let me just read it to you, verses 13 through 15. This is a psalm of worship to God, and it says in verse 13, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings, and I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats, and so forth. 
He's putting here his payment of his vow as an expression of his worship to God. In fact, vows are such an expression of righteousness when done in the right way and in the right manner and for the right reasons that God himself makes a vow to us. God himself makes a vow to us and a vows to his people. He made in the book of Amos vows to judgment. Listen to Amos chapter 4 too. I just want to give you a flavor of this. It says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. The idea of swearing is, can see, uh, encapsulates the idea of a vow. He made a promise. He made a promise publicly that he would do something. Of course, God cannot make a promise to someone greater. So he swore by his own holiness. But he swore, he swore by his own holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you, and they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks, and so on and so forth. He's making there a promise of judgment. He says in Isaiah 6, 8, to the same, in the same manner, The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels, therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains. God makes vows to express his displeasure. God makes vows to express judgment. He also makes vows himself to his people to express blessing. Blessing. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 8, the prophet says this, Isaiah 62, 8. God speaking through the prophet, he says, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food to your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. God had brought in the flow of Isaiah judgment to his people. He had warned them of the consequences of their sin, but he also warns them that after the payment of their sin, in the future, God's grace will be manifest by a blessing that he will bring and will not be taken away. But the point here is that he gives that promise of blessing in the context of making a vow. He makes a vow. Our very salvation is because of a promise and a vow that God made to Fulfill his work of redemption. Let me give you two passages before we move on. Psalm 132. Psalm 132 says this. Psalm 132, verse 11. Let me get there. He says this. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction. That's in verse 1. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob... Surely I will not enter my house or lie in my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. This is David making a vow at the beginning to the Lord to do something. As we know the story, that was not what the Lord had designed. And so it wasn't David who would build a house. It was Solomon who would build a house. They're speaking of the temple. But God, looking to the future, says, I will build a house for you that will be an eternal kingdom. That is the promise to David. They're speaking ultimately of this future Messiah. The house there will be the name the Messiah who will come as a fulfillment of the promise to David. Then in verse 11, it says this. Actually, verse 10. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. And there he goes. He says at the end of verse 12. And their sons shall sit upon your throne forever. Of course, that was not fulfilled through any merely natural human descendant of David, but ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you one other reference here to that. He says this, Hebrews 6. Now remember in Hebrews 6, and we're going to fit this into the flow here, but in Hebrews chapter 6, or in the book of Hebrews, God is writing to a people to try to encourage them to remain faithful to the gospel, to remain faithful to the gospel. They were being threatened. There was persecution that they endured. They were, many of them, apostatizing and turning back to Jewish religion and a rejection of the gospel, which they had actually become convinced of and known, many of them. That's Hebrews 6. They had seen, they had been enlightened. They had heard the truth of the gospel. They had tasted the powers of the age to come and so forth. But their heart was not transformed. 
But for those who were persevering, for those who were continuing, for those who were close to becoming weary and falling away, God yet gives them a promise to persevere. And he says in this way in verse verse 6, chapter 17, in the same way, well, verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves with them an oath is given as a confirmation is an end to every dispute. In the same way, God even more, desiring even more to show the heirs of his promise, that is, believers, the us, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath that by two unchangeable things, one which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge who would have, would have, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope, hold of the hope that is set before us. So vows were a righteous expression of faith. Vows were an expression of commitment. Vows were an expression of dedication of life or service to the Lord or a particular work to the Lord. Vows are a part of what God himself uses to confirm his acts of judgment, to confirm acts of blessing, to confirm acts of salvation. Our very salvation is the fruit of God making a vow determining and promising to do something and then accomplishing what he promised. In a contemporary example of this, vows, outside of this, what do you think would be one? The vows of marriage. We do that in our own culture. This would be reflective of the ways that they had it as a particular commitment to the Lord, but it was when we come together in marriage, when a husband and a wife, or a future husband and wife, before the idea was said, in the saying of the ideas and the commitment of covenants, there is a vow that's being made. It is a covenant of marriage. It is a promise of exclusivity to that relationship and commitment of oneness of flesh in life in every other way. We make vows. This idea of a vow, which he's going to address in Ecclesiastes, has been in many ways diminished as we see that even in our own culture. The idea of the vow of marriage, the idea of the institution of marriage itself is belittled. Even the vows that are made ever since, well, no-fault divorce and the way that our culture is taking that. But the point is, is we make vows. We can understand this. The vow is a commitment to something. In a secular sense, people understand this or should, but this again, because truth is not exalted. A person can make a vow before the court, and what do we say? Put your hand on your Bible, right? I promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Wait, how's it go? To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That is a vow. That is a promise to be faithful to the witness uh, that is given on the stand, in that case, in the court of law. So vows were righteous expressions of faith. They are and can be righteous expressions of faith. We do that ceremonially. We can do that even in relationships. We'll come back to that. But when he says when you make a vow, that fit within the context of how faith was demonstrated and commitment to God was demonstrated. We do the same thing. Uh, Vows, however, and this needs to be noted, could be made foolishly. Are we supposed to fulfill every vow? Or was every vow that was even made in the context of even Israelite religion, which will be the example for us, was that vow, was was every vow necessarily to be fulfilled? And the answer is every righteous vow was. Every vow consistent with the character of God. But it was possible to make a foolish vow. I won't turn there, but in 1 Samuel 14, if you remember the story of David's life, Saul made a vow. He was going to battle, uh, and he made a vow that nobody would eat until he had executed vengeance on his enemy. Do you all remember this? Jonathan, his son, didn't hear about the vow. He didn't know about it, and so they were marching. The, 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 the Israelites in battle were weary. They were tired. They had been fighting. They were hungry. They needed strength. So Jonathan, not knowing about the vow sees some honey on the ground, dips a stick, takes it up, he eats it, and his eyes were brightened, it says. But he had broken this vow that Saul had made, and so what happened is that became known. In 1 Samuel 14, actually, I will turn there. It became known that because they were defeated, 
uh, or they had struck the verse 31, they struck among the Philistines the day from Michmash to Ahihalom, and the people were very weary, and the people rushed greedily on the spoil, took sheep and oxen and calves, they slew them to the ground, and the people ate them with their blood. And then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating blood. He says, You acted treacherously, and so forth. So Saul made them do it right, he built an altar. And then he went down to go to battle again with the Philistines. And Saul inquired of God before he went to battle, Shall I go down after the Philistines, and will you give them into my hand, into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. And Saul said, Draw near, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate. How has this sin happened today? In other words, how has something come about whereas God is not with the armies of Israel, and he won't answer the king of Israel? And so, in order to find that out, uh, they do a process of elimination. And it says that he said to all of Israel, You shall be on one side, the leaders there, and I and Jonathan and my son will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Verse 41, Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken. The people escaped. Uh, And then they cast lots between Saul and his son Jonathan. And Jonathan went forward and Saul said, tell me what you have done. And so Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. And here I am, I must die. And Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. He was ready as a matter of faithfulness to his vow to kill his own son who had brought about many victories for Israel. In this case, however, God intervened through the people. It says in verse 45, The people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance and evil? Far from it! As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And so the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Not everything turned out that way, however. In the book of Judges, we have an example of a vow that was made and foolishly kept. Judges chapter 11. Some of y'all will remember Jephthah, Jephthah, the vow that he made regarding his daughter. Jephthah was a judge that God had raised up to deliver Israel. And let me just say here, as we get to, the, to understand the context, the book of Judges is essentially an account of this slide into degradation and the spiritual debauchery of the nation of Israel. And we end at the end of Judges with accounts that are actually quite hard to read. Uh, One of a priest of God who had a harlot who was killed by being sexually abused all night. He cuts her up into pieces, sends out those pieces, and this was in the nations within the, uh, the borders of Israel, sends out those pieces to the other tribes, calls them to war to go against the tribe of Benjamin, and they almost destroyed and wiped out a tribe of Israel. That's how Judges ends. And so when we look at Judges and we see this progression after the death of Joshua and those who were leaders during the age of Joshua, the previous book, there's a slide down into moral and spiritual apostasy from the nation of Israel. And so this fits within that context, and so does Judges is the context in which we get judges like Solomon, who is hardly a moral example for us. But in verse 29, it says of Jephthah that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and then he passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said this, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, It shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That was a vow. It was a vow that he made to the Lord. It was a vow that he made foolishly. Even Saul's vow was foolish. He goes, as the account goes, he he went. He had a very great slaughter. God essentially held up his part of that deal, and he gave a great deliverance into the hands of this judge. It says in verse 33, he struck them with a very great slaughter from Ori to the entrance of Meneth, 20 cities, and as far as abel to the so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. So here we have this height of victory. 
And then after that, he goes as this victorious leader, as this hero in battle. And it says in verse 34, But when he came to his house, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. And now she was his one and only child. And besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And actually, in a demonstration of her righteous character, she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. Ammon. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. I and my companions, he said, go. So he sent her away for two months. She left with her companions, wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. She was still, she was, when she was a virgin. And thus it became a custom in Israel. Now, the question here perennially is, did he actually give his daughter as a sacrifice in commitment of the vow, or did he merely seclude her to be perpetually a virgin? Both of them were a significant blow to Jephthah because she was his only daughter. So essentially, by saying she was to remain a virgin, or that she even died in her virginity, is to say that there would be no descendant, that that was the end of his line. He would have no name to go on after that, which, particularly in that context, was a great judgment. However, as this passage has been understood mostly through the history of the church and clearly through the language, uh, he did, in fact, uh, would hold, which is how this is commonly understood, sacrifice his daughter. He fulfilled his vow. It was a foolish vow. It was one that he should not have kept. It was one that was unrighteous. And yet it shows the degradation of how far the nation had come. But here also illustrating that vows can be made foolishly. And not every foolish vow was necessarily required to be fulfilled. So when should a vow not be fulfilled? A vow should not be fulfilled when it would involve sin when it would involve sin, and when it is, would involve unrighteousness. And here, Jephthah sinned in a most heinous way. Child sacrifice was abhorrent, of course, abhorrent to an Israelite, and it was forbidden in the law. So vows were a significant part, however, within the consciousness of Israel, and they are and should be a significant part of our own conscience and our own consciousness when we would make any kind of promise or display of faith. Now, if we go back to Ecclesiastes 5, the, the situation here seems to be that of a promise made really in the fit of excitement or in an intention to be impressive to others or impressive to God. It was not a genuine expression of conviction and loving commitment. And that's what Solomon is addressing. Vows are good. Vows can be righteous. But because vows can also be foolish. But because a vow is in and of itself a way to demonstrate a particular act of faith or obedience to God. When one made them, what did it do? It lifted up the person who made it, right? It made them appear to be righteous in the eyes of others. And so there was a temptation in making a vow to be insincere, to be hypocritical in making this vow. There was the possibility to have a false sense of righteousness in making of the vow, but then follow through in sinfulness by not fulfilling it. And this is actually uh, very, um, very poignant to us. We have, a, by our natural human tendency, uh, a great tendency or propensity to feel righteous in our commitments, but not necessarily in our follow-through. This is why in Psalm 15, David said, part of a godliness, who is the one who may enter into his holy hill, who may ascend to the presence of the Lord? 
Uh, it is the one who swears to his own hurt. In other words, who swears, but to his own hurt in Psalm 15 fulfills his vow because of the righteousness and the integrity of his character. But sometimes we can think that there's a certain kind of, and this fits within the, the idea of Solomon's instructions here in Ecclesiastes 5. We can sense that there is some kind of uh, righteousness or some kind of piousness or some kind of virtue in merely making the commitment, but that's, that's not the case. Listen to this. I just want to mention it to you. Uh, Jesus addresses this very thing in the Gospels. He says, so when he entered in, in Matthew 21, he enters into Jerusalem to the praises of you know, the people, the palm branches, and so forth. He gets in there. The children are cry, crying out and calling, Hosanna, glory to God, in the highest, and those kind of things. The Pharisees are very irked by this, as they were by his entire ministry, is seeing the praise that he was giving. And so they challenge Jesus on receiving this praise from others. And they ask, you know, who gave you the authority? Because he also cleared out the temple. And he said, who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus says to them, well, I'll tell you what, because he knew their hearts. And he says, you tell me by what authority that... Uh, John the Baptist had his ministry, which pointed to Christ. And I'll tell you by what authority uh, that I do these things. And after that, then he gives a parable of two sons, reflecting the way that the nation responded to him. And he says in verse 28, But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, the, uh, the first son, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered him and he said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The first did the will of his father. Any of us who know ourselves and our own failure in this or have friends or children know that there is can be sometimes a quickness because it'll maybe... Uh, make me appear righteous in that moment or get someone off my back to say, I will do it. Oh, yeah, I'll do it. But you can come back hours later and it's still not, it's still not done. Or someone can have a bad attitude up front and not want to do it, but it actually gets done. Which one obeyed? It's the same way in making vows. It's very tempting to make a vow up front because it appears to be righteous, but the issue is not the making of the vow. It is the doing of the vow. It is the integrity then of our lives. And in a very real sense to us, our very salvation then, this reflects the gospel, is the, the promise of a vow to God to live for him, a vow to commit ourselves to him in faith. As God has fulfilled his vow in the new covenant by fulfilling his promises so we, in response to him, essentially are making a vow to God and saying, I will follow you, I will obey you. If we use again that illustration of Israel, they said we will follow God, but in the end they didn't. The Jews and the Gentiles, or the, the disobedient Jews and the Gentiles, were not going to follow God, but in the end they were the ones who responded. And so in doing so, they were making then a commitment to God. And in a very real sense, our entire lives as Christians then are a vow to God. Now remember, even in the context of Ecclesiastes 5, this is one in a, an illustration of foolishness, which could be a sin of someone who is in the covenant, in truth, spiritually. But it more often than not is one who is outside of the covenant, one who's merely going through the motions externally. But those who are truly in the covenant... Uh, who truly are making these vows as a religious commitment, as we do, um, demonstrate the reality of faith that way. Listen to this. And then I want to give you two examples of this for us. In a very real sense, our lives are a vow to God. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 12, that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God as your spiritual service of worship. When we come to God in faith, we are simply vowing to God to believe in him, to live with him. And our lives, our vow to God isn't something extra that we bring to him. It is our own very lives given to him in holiness and in obedience. And there is a very real sense in which the public demonstration of this is through the ordinances of the church. When somebody is baptized, we're going to have a baptism service in uh, 
uh, probably a couple weeks or so. There is the sign of commitment to the Lord. There is a sign of faith, a faith that everything that Scripture says about Christ is true, and then a sign of our commitment to those truths as they are revealed in the person of Christ and in Scripture. There's a sense when we see these, when you were baptized or when we see these baptisms and we publicly identify with Christ, we are essentially saying, I'm making a vow before all of the people of God, not unlike they would have done in the temple and in their own way, uh, in making a vow in the presence of the place of worship, the gathered people of God uh, in the old covenant. So as a believer, when someone comes to the waters of baptism, it is a vow that we made to God that says, I belong to you. My life is yours. My life belongs to you. My life is given in service to you. My life will be lived by faith in you. My life will be lived obediently to you. And there's a very real sense then when we make a vow to God, and we could use the same principle here to say, then don't be laid in pain it. In other words, don't make that vow and then go and forget and not follow through with the obedience of your life. There's a way, too, in which we demonstrate this in the Lord's Supper. It's a remembrance of God's covenant faithfulness to his vow in providing a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. But every time we take the Lord's Supper together, we are revowing, as it were, as the people of God to say, we are the people of God. We are vowing to live together in unity and harmony and in faith and in purity before the God who has redeemed us before Christ. And so in the Lord's Supper, we make a vow to the Lord. We make a vow to live for him. We make a vow to trust him. We make a vow to follow him. There is a sense, too, in which we'll recognize this in a few weeks, in which we make a vow to the Lord when we have formal membership. It is a public commitment. It is not a baptism in the Lord's Supper, which are commanded, but it is an application of our commitment to the local church to say the person makes a vow to live faithfully among the community of God's people at a gathered local church to live faithfully the Christian life with them and in service to the Lord among that body. Formal membership is a sense of a vow before the Lord to break a vow of marriage is to or to uh, not live in the exclusivity of that relationship is to break a vow you made to a person uh, to sin against the lord or to live uh, wantingly in that sin is to break the vow that we made at baptism in the lord's supper and there's at a lesser level but in the same idea when we make a vow to a church and to a body of believers we're doing so publicly and before the Lord to live faithfully among that community of believers. But we don't always follow through with our vows, and that's what he warns with here. When you make a vow to God, don't be late and pay it. He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Uh, do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of a messenger. We'll come to that. Why should God be angry on account of your voice? But we don't always pay our vows. Let me, let me just note a few reasons that would keep us from paying our vows and these kind of vows that we make to the Lord. First, first of all, I'd say it's not wrong. It's not the highest mark of spirituality to make vows. The new covenant changes. That's part of what, and I'll mention this in a bit, what Jesus addresses in letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Although Jesus himself confirmed his word in the idea of, again, uh, of a, not so much a vow as a public commitment to action, but if we take the larger picture of an oath, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, an emphasis of him, this word being a faithful word of God. But there is vows that we make, promises to action that sometimes we don't fulfill. What would be some of the reasons that we would not fulfill our vows? One, let me give you just a few. The vow may be made before the cost of fulfilling it is considered. In other words, and this is part of what Solomon is addressing, making a rash vow. Proverbs 20, 25 says this, It is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vows, to make inquiry. In other words, just to say something off the top of his head, and then later say, you know, what is this going to cost me? What did I just commit myself to? And then end up not being able to fulfill that vow. That's one reason we would make it rashly. 
Sometimes we make a vow and can't fulfill it because it's not in our power to fulfill it. And actually, God made provision for this uh, even in the law. In Numbers uh, chapter 30, verse 8, he says, if, speaking of a wife who makes a vow, but in verse, he says, if her, uh, well, verse 6, however, if she should marry while under her vows or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day he hears of it, then her vows shall stand and her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow which she is under and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. And he gives some other examples. In other words, God recognized that sometimes a vow can be made that it isn't within our power to fulfill that vow. And in that sense, one is excused. They're codified in the law. There's more personal reasons why we wouldn't fulfill a vow. Sometimes we won't, don't fulfill a vow because of the encroachment of covetousness. And this is particularly if we make a promise to do something that's going to cost us. Let me give you one example here and then a brief illustration, a personal illustration. Second uh, Corinthians 9. So in Second Corinthians 9, Paul is addressing a collection that he's coming to make from the church at Corinth. It was a collection for relief of those who were in need in Jerusalem. And they had previously made a vow to give such and such an amount for the relief. And now some time has gone by and Paul's coming to, to make this collection, Paul with his companions. And he says this in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge you, brethren, that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. In other words, I want to make sure that before we get there that everything's squared away and that the promise that you made in the presence of others, again, as an expression of righteousness, your righteousness, he says, I'm going to send them ahead uh, so that they can collect this, uh, this, uh, this previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. In other words, he was concerned that you made this vow in sort of the height of some kind of spiritual excitement, and then now that some time has gone by, you're not quite as excited as you were. There's not quite the accolades of virtue that you would get from others in making that vow. And now when you would, the money would come to be collected, you'd go, ah, that was kind of, I got a little carried away. So I've kind of adjusted my figures a little bit. And I want to give a different amount. And Paul says, I want to make sure that hasn't happened because it's covetousness. Now, for those who've been here for a while, you'll know this uh, this verse always, I can't separate uh, this experience from this verse. We, when we lived in California, uh, before we moved uh, away, uh, we had a condo. And uh, that's where we lived, of course. And so uh, in we buy, buying this condo, it had, in our time there, appreciated quite a bit. And if you're familiar with the market in California, it can do like this, right? So anyway, we got in here and the market went like that. And then when we sold, the market had started to go back down. And so when it was at the height of what the value of this condo, Trish and I had made a commitment to give a certain amount of money. This is what we're going to give out of this, uh, the sell of it, out of the equity. And we, you know, we're going to give it to the such and such and such. And, and so that's what we had done. Well, that was before the downside. And it started going down when we actually sold it. And so I can still remember we had a loft in, this, in the condo where we lived and there. And uh, I'm thinking through this, and I'm like, man, that's, that's a little bit bigger percentage now than it was, you know, uh, a while ago when we made that commitment. And so I, I remember going downstairs, and I, and I said to Trish, you know, honey, I was just kind of thinking, you know, maybe we should be better, you know, maybe we just kind of gave this percentage and whatever of it. And Trish looks at me without missing a beat, and she goes, but we made a commitment to the Lord. And as soon as, as soon as she said that, of course, it was like a knife, you know, right now. Here I am, the seminary student, graduated, you know, Mr. Spiritual and, you know, knows the Bible. And here I am trying to sin. And my wife just looks me right in the face and says, we made a commitment to the Lord. What are you, like, what are you talking about? And then I don't remember what I stumbled out of my words, like, yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah you're right. Um, but a conviction went, and this was the passage that went, that was like a knife in my heart. I, I, I left and went out for a jog, and I was thinking about this the whole time. But it was this, let's it be affected by covetousness. Uh, 
by covetousness. And so maybe you can identify with that sometimes in your own life. Maybe not with money, as it was for us in that case, uh, but maybe it's with time. Maybe it's to do some kind of service for someone else. Maybe it's with a skill, something that you're going to do. And all of a sudden that sounded great in the moment, but then when you have to wake up on that morning or you have to actually depart or give something up to do it, you start making excuses. Uh, Well, you know, when I made that, I was thinking this. It turned out to be a little more than I thought, whatever. Uh, The way that scripture would speak about that is to say that's covetousness. It's covetousness, which can happen not merely with, uh, not merely with money, but with anything that's going to cause us a sacrifice. And so sometimes we can make a promise, and we need to be careful that we don't try to lessen that promise or somehow get out of it, which he's going to address in a moment. And I would just make briefly this: sometimes we can make vows in the context of sanctification. Now, there's more I wanted to spend on this. Uh, But anyway, in the power of indwelling sin, however, can creep up and keep us from being faithful to our vows. Have we ever said uh, to the Lord under some great conviction for some kind of sin, we make a vow before God to to fight that sin or to get out of the consequences of it, and we find, Lord, I'm going to commit myself, I'm going to give up this sin, right? People have struggles in a variety of ways. I'm going to give up lying. I'm going to give up pornography. I'm going to give up some kind of sinful action, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to make a vow to do it, and then we find that we fail, and then we make a vow again, and we fail again, and we make a vow again, and we fail again. And sometimes that can lead us just to give up altogether. Sometimes it should humble us, because maybe to review that we were doing it in our own strength, and not realizing that the grace and the weakening of that sin in our heart is through the work of the Spirit and the Gospel. And so we can sometimes make vows in the battle of sanctification or to some kind of commitment to the Lord without appreciating the reality of indwelling sin. An example here could be Peter in some measure. Lord, though all may fall away from you, I will never fall away from you. I will never deny you. And what did Peter do? And so he let him fail to remind him of his own indwelling sin and to humble him. In other cases, there may be success in a vow, but it deals only with outward behavior, and the love for sin in the heart is barely or not at all weakened. Sometimes it's strengthened. So this isn't so much, right? This isn't so outside of us or distant from us, this tendency that we have that uh, Solomon is addressing to make these kind of commitments to the Lord, and sometimes making commitments that we can get all too comfortable with not fulfilling And so that's more than insincerity, Solomon says, it is sin. So he says in verse 6, do not let your speech cause you to sin. Don't let it cause you to sin. God sees that not merely as a moment of weakness, but as disobedience. It's a failure in faith. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of a messenger of God. Who is the messenger here? That's a discussion. It could be a messenger. It could be a priest. It could be somebody who served in the temple who came to collect the vow. It could be an angel of God. The the term there is for angel is also messenger. Uh, It could be any of those, but most likely I would hold is that it's either a messenger of somebody who worked in the temple. In other words, or a priest who came to collect the vow, or the the messenger, uh, somebody who was in the temple, or the priest himself, who came to collect the vow. But the point is, not really that, the point is, is that when it was time to pay, there was an excuse. Listen to what they say. Do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Oops. Didn't quite mean it. I didn't mean it. He says, don't say that. That That is sin. You're going to bring upon yourself the discipline of God. And we have, again, amazing capacity to do this. Uh, in the Old Testament, this is, or in the New Testament, this is precisely what Jesus confronted the Pharisees on. We don't have time to turn there, but Matthew 5, he says, you know, do not make a vow, do not say by the hairs of your head or by Jerusalem and so forth. And his point there was this. They, they had a very subtle way of lying. And it was this, the commandment in the law, whoever makes a vow by the Lord is bound to that. And so they would make vows by heaven, they would make vows by earth, they would make vows by the 
the, the money in Matthew 23 that was in the temple, the gold that was in the temple, they would make all kinds of vows, but they wouldn't say, in the Lord, in the name of the Lord, you know, that, those exact words. You know, I didn't say those exact words, and so I'm not, you know, I had my fingers crossed, essentially. So I didn't mean it. And so his point in Matthew chapter 5 is that that was a subtle way for them to get out of commitments, to say, I make a vow to you, but I didn't say it in the Lord, so I'm not ultimately really bound to that vow. I can get out of it. And Jesus, that's in that context, says, basically, you're lying. It's a form of lying. And therefore, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be people who have true and honest speech. Be people of true and honest speech. Well, let's just wrap this up quickly here at the end. It says, do not then let your speech cause you to sin. So in other words, when you speak and you make a promise, godliness is marked by the fulfillment of that promise. And it's not merely insincerity in the eyes of God. It is sin. And so he says, why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. As one said, if we treacherously cancel the words of our mouth and revoke our vows, God will justly overthrow our projects. In other words, our intentions and our plans. What is the answer to that? End of verse 7. Fear God. Fear God. The call here overall is this, to offer God true worship from a sincere heart of reverence and a life of integrity. This is the mark of the reality of faith. This is the sum and the substance of religion, as one said, to fear God. God always places the sincerity of our faith, our love, our pious actions in the fruit of our lives. That's what I mentioned last week, just briefly. It's, it's the fruit of our lives, obedience from the heart, motivated by the fear of God and the love for Christ. That's the evidence of our spirituality. One old writer said this, Beware of a religion of temporary excitement, far different from deep, solid, permanent principle. And whatever be the cost, be true to the conservation of thyself as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1, on an altar of thy God. Quote. And so that's the call here. Is one is to say, if we were to sum that up, is to say this. Be a people of integrity in how we deal with one another. When we live before God, be faithful to our promises. When we make vows to God and promises, be faithful and fulfill them. When we make commitments to one another, be faithful in fulfilling them. This is the mark of a life that fears God, and it is a mark that's given to God in true worship. Well, as always, there's more to be said, but... With that, let me just ask, and, and I'll close this in prayer because I went a couple minutes over. Um, is to say, have you ever given your life to the Lord as a commitment? And is there anyone here? And that you answer to yourself. Have you been baptized or need to be baptized? Or when we take the Lord's Supper, do you understand that your life is given as a vow to God? And this is the encouragement to us, not merely in specific acts, that's the main idea, or to put the idea of Solomon, but it is the vow of our whole lives, as was mentioned again, that we offer to God in response to his mercies, our lives as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, acceptable to God as our spiritual service of worship. And that's the big picture here. And it's all summed up in these words. Live a life of reverence that fears God. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your forgiveness, because in all of our commitments we, each one of us, have failed. We failed in specifics. We failed to follow through with our word at times. We've said things insincerely, and no doubt that we have said things at times where even in our making that commitment, we knew in the deep depths of our heart that we weren't really going to fulfill it or weren't committed to it, and we're ready to make an excuse. Forgive us for this sin. Keep us from it. Make us a people who live lives of truth and integrity and honesty. Let our words be such that when we say yes and no, that people without question know that it's meant and that it will be followed through in as much as it's in our power to do so. Help us not to be covetous. Help us not to be stingy with our time and with our resources, but to be a people who are generous 
and happily give ourselves for the good and the benefit of others. And Lord, help impress upon us the fact that our lives are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. And we acknowledge that purchase each time that we gather, each time that we take your table, and when we get up or have gotten up in the waters of baptism to say that our lives have been committed to you, not merely temporarily like a Nazarite, but our whole lives have been exchanged for your life to live for you and impress that commitment upon us daily to new levels of depth and purpose for us, that we might live to you and give you a life that truly has value and eternal significance, always abounding in the work of the word. Again, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for gathering us here this morning. And to that end, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.